it's kind of all fallen neatly for me, really. Even though I didn't want to leave the IHF, I'm glad I did because it's taken me wider, further afield into other things I wouldn't have worked in, like homelessness uh, and drug addiction. And of course, these things are all connected. Everyone is homeless has got mental health problems. You would have mental health problems being homeless, even if you didn't before. But most people become homeless because they're rejected as kids or they're not wanted. So that's why you get mental health problems. So homelessness and mental health are the same issue. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Really delighted to welcome along today, Martin Seeger. Martin is a consultant clinical psychologist and adult psychotherapist, most, re- most recently with the addictions charity CGL between 2016 and 2020. He's a clinician, lecturer, campaigner and author on mental health issues. He studied at Oxford University, Edinburgh University and the Tavistock Clinic. And he worked in the NHS for over 30 years and was head of psychological services in two large mental health trusts. Martin is unusual in that he had a regular mental health slot on BBC Essex Radio between 2003 and 2007, and was also on BBC Radio 5 Live up all night between 2007 and 2009. In 2006, he formed a National Mental Health Advisory Group for the Health Secretary at the time, Patricia Hewitt. And in 2010 to 2011, he worked in the homelessness field with the charity St Mungo's and also The Big Issue. Martin spent over 10 years as a branch consultant to the Central London Samaritans and was a member of the Mental Health Advisory Board for the College of Medicine. He's now on the Clinical Advisory Board of the Campaign Against Living Miserably. His passion is to promote a psychologically minded approach to science, public health and human well-being, moving away from treating mental conditions to meeting the psychological needs of the human condition. He's a specialist on male gender psychology and co-founder of both the Male Psychology Network and the Male Psychology section of the BPS. He's co-editor of the Palgrave Handbook of Male Psychology and Mental Health in 2019, which includes a chapter on gamma bias theory, which he developed with John Barry. Very extensive, um, diverse yeah. career then, Martin. Really, really <laughs> pleased to have you here. You hear to read back to you like that. It's <laughs> yeah, well, we're really looking forward to um, digging yeah. into some of that with you. Thanks for coming along. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Yeah, I'm very pleased to meet you, Martin. You've had a long and very interesting uh, career and uh, our paths have crossed at several times, but at different periods, I think. Uh, I also also worked with the homeless via the the Simon community and the Cyrenians. And uh, I've also been involved with the drugs field through yeah. the Lee community. Yes. That's so right. I think we've got a lot in common. Anyway, you've like had, <laughs> yeah, you've had this very long career and worked in a wide variety of services. Can you tell us a bit about how, how you come to make decisions about the sort of things you choose to do? Yeah, that's a very good question. I don't think you're always conscious of that and certainly my career has always been mainly with adult mental health. So why adults, I suppose, you know, uh, to some degree, I suppose it's because it's the widest age range, you know, it goes from, you can work with teenagers right up to old people really. So it doesn't limit your scope for the human condition. 
I think I, when I started in the NHS, I was just looking for a, a department that wasn't completely CBT focused. Not that I hate CBT, I've been trained in it. But I just wanted a department that thought a bit more systemically and dynamically as well. I found one and also it's just where I lived. I lived, I've always been a bit of an Essex man. So I, although I trained in Edinburgh, I was living in the Essex area when I qualified. So I just found a local department started there and it, then it just happened to be promotions really if you're in adult mental health you want to write about that and teach then a job came up with lecture attached to it a lectureship so i moved to south essex because it had a, a a lectureship there uh all sort of standard stuff really and then i just my interest just became wider as I got more senior. I just suppose I saw the applications of psychology could go wider than just sitting in a room doing treatment, which was, you know, a very valid thing to do. I've done that all my life, but it's it's only one application of psychology and probably the narrowest in many ways. Uh, so I, my career choices have always been as I've got more senior. I've just looked at, and also to be brutally honest, I've been treated badly in two mental health trusts so I had to move <laughs> you know because when you get to a very top position in psychology in the NHS you can conflict with a medicalized culture you, you, you end up in sort of conflict with medical directors and then of course just people who just don't really get psychological thinking there's a kind of resistance which may be partly personal in some people and you get cultures which are very uh, not psychologically friendly and, and even in mental health trust you think they'd be the most psychologically friendly places <laughs> it's not been my experience but you know I'm, I'm not sort of someone who hides his head under a parapet so maybe i've triggered a few people along the way myself but really when i was working in one mental health trust its budget for psychological services was only five percent of all its budget was spent on psychological you know you'd think that a mental health trust would spend more than 5% of its budget on psychological stuff. So I was fighting that kind of thing. So these are the kinds of things our society is still struggling with. You know, is psychology really a serious thing? I think it's moved on. People recognize talking therapies now, but they only recognize them as an equivalent to drugs. You know, you've only got to give someone a drug or talk to them as if that's a realistic choice. You know, as if they don't need chalk and cheese in different aspects of their life. Of course, Psychology is always involved, even if you're giving drugs. You're having a relationship with someone which has power, compassion, uh, some expectations, and attachment. So you can't give drugs without a relationship, without psychological impact anyway. So all these things increasingly interested me as I went through the health service. And I was sort of forced out of the health service, really. So I've gone more into the charity sector. So having politically clashed with a mental health trust, I then ended up in the charity sector so that's my job choices have been chosen partly by no longer being welcome in the NHS which is a bit sad although I went back to it I had to do frontline jobs just to get my pension so I got my pension NHS pension out which is nice because I deserved it I think uh, but I've been working mainly with the charity sector uh, and of course that's more looking widely at homelessness drug addiction it's kind of all fallen neatly for me, really. Even though I didn't want to leave the NHF, I'm glad I did because it's taken me wider, further afield into other things I wouldn't have worked in, like homelessness uh, and drug addiction. And of course, these things are all connected. 
everyone who's homeless has got mental health problems. You would have mental health problems being homeless, even if you didn't before, but most people become homeless because they're rejected as kids or they're not wanted. So that's why you get mental health problems. So homelessness and mental health are the same issue. Taking drugs is just self-medication for feeling bad. So all these things are just linked. And then of course, crime as well, you know, it will end up people who are damaged are more likely to damage someone. So it's all, it's all linked stuff. So I just got more and more interested in the big- There's a, a lot there, Martin. <laughs> um, but um, clearly from what you're saying, you're, you're somebody who's been able to um, kind of view the wide panorama of human activities and uh, identify things that uh, interest you and then you've been able to go and because of your experience and qualifications you've been able to go and follow some slightly different paths Um, and that's clearly a great quality which you you have you also mentioned you also mentioned of course difficulties encountered with some of the management and medical power structures in the NHS which I think we could do a whole podcast because (laughs) I think it's so important and so many bad things have come out of the kind of power inequalities that you find within the NHS I'm sure it exists in other structures as well but it's a human failing generally yeah it's a human fate, and we, we we do tend to perhaps focus on it a lot in the uh, uh, health service, but uh, it's a major a major issue, it seems to me. Maybe we should come back to that uh, yeah. one day. Oh, well, I was also really interested to hear you talking about how much you valued working more broadly than as a therapist as well, because I think quite often psychologists, clinical psychologists, do end up in roles where where they are just doing therapy and and whilst that is a a really lovely part of the role actually there are other professional groups that it's cheaper to employ so it doesn't make good Mm. economic sense to employ psychologists if you're only using them as as therapists Mm. um when you think about how much of how much of the training is focused on much more strategic tasks yeah now that that's always been my concern too because uh when, when I went to clinical psychology, and I'm old enough for that to be in the 80s, <laughs> I, I was always told how broad clinical psychology was. And if you think about it, clinical psychology is the equivalent of clinical biology. What is clinical biology? Just medicine generally. It doesn't limit you. There are medics who go out into politics, who go or go into foreign countries to change things. Uh, they get involved in war zones or they get involved in changing the world a bit. I think psychologists need to think the same way. I mean, psychology is part of human nature. In fact, it's the psychology determines everything, really, the way people think, that their, their, their minds are just determining what their bodies get up to, really. <laughs> so we really do need to be thinking broader than just sitting in a room. I mean, I started out as a clinical psychology trainee doing behavioral treatment for people with thunderstorm phobia. You know, that's where you start. And it was valuable because all these levels are valuable. But if you're a clinical psychologist, you're bound to get interested in why the broader issues around mental health and what, what you know, just treating an individual in a room is taking the medical model. So, I, I mean, psychologists are always attacking the medical. I find it very ironic because you see so many psychologists slagging off the medical model. But they're really just 
doing the same thing. It's almost as if they just want to compete with the medical model rather than actually do something. And of course, the medical model is fantastically important because we are biological creatures as well. We need doctors. And even in mental health, we need doctors. We need people who know about the medical side of it to calm people down when they're unreachable. You know, people can be very distressed in ways you can't talk to them at a certain point. You need real medical expertise. It's not about this childish fight between you know, mental psychology and biology. It's just about, if you're a psychologist, why would you just wait to someone for someone to refer someone to you? Yeah, when I joined the Samaritans uh, as an advisor to the London branch, I, mean, I suddenly realised if I helped them with their training about how they listen to callers, I could have more impact on more people than if I just sit, sit in the NHS waiting for someone to refer someone to me. Much as I love doing that, it's not a bad thing. It's just not the only thing. In fact, it's not even the main thing, because as I, I did a review, the Samaritans commissioned me in 2010 to do a review of why talking helps people. Uh, they didn't then publish it or use it, but it was an you know, internal thing. But uh, I just said, well, if you look at all the ways in which people talk to each other, families, friends, uh, work colleagues, uh, people in the church, communities, team managers, we're all influencing each other psychologically all the time. We're all having conversations which change attitudes, which challenge feelings. We're doing psychology all the time in our lives. And 99% of the interactions which make your mental health better are done outside of professional psychology. Teachers, we said we should, psychologists, we should be supporting all the conversations that are ha happening in mental health, not simply just becoming clinicians. But we have to have that clinical knowledge to then go out, because that's the other problem. When you start saying things like that, people think, well, I don't need to be a psychologist. Anyone can do this. You can just talk to anybody nicely and you, you help the mental health. You don't have to have any training. That's dangerous as well, because clinical psychology taught me a massive amount of scientific thinking, massive amount of knowledge about the human condition. And you can make it sound simple, but integrating all that stuff takes a lot of years of development. But yeah, I mean, I realized in the early 2000s, you know, when I was in my 40s, that I should really be reaching more people. I did the radio thing for that reason as well. You know, the BBC offered me that chance to do a, a sort of phone in on mental health for two years. And uh, that was really helpful. Uh, and you're reaching more people. Obviously, you could do it well or badly. It's like anything. There's all sorts of people out there in the media doing awful things, saying awful things about psychology who aren't really very good at it or, you know, but equally, uh, it, that's all the more reason why people do know what they're doing. I think to get out there and actually spread some science without going over the top, because if you start becoming too prominent in the media, it sort of undermines your ability to do your job in confidential ways with people without your media profile getting in the way. So I've consciously not tried to push that too much, uh, but at the same time, you do need a, some kind of media. As if I'm doing this podcast, I think it's really nice of people like you you're doing this. You know, you're doing what I think is a great thing. You're putting out professionally thoughtful podcasts that might change a few attitudes. You know. Well, let's hope. Um, <laughs> clear, clearly. Martin, you're a person who believes that psychological concepts should be spread outside of the NHS. Oh, yes. 
what do you think is the best way that psychologists can can do this they can't all do a radio show after all no well i just think there's something else i do in a local community with another psychologist we do a drop-in in our local church which is free and people with mental health issues or just worries about that side of life can just come in and from the community and talk to us but they we also have befrienders there so they can just come and have a friendly conversation so you can make a community feel a bit more contained by just having a place where people can drop in i mean just anything if, if i'm one of my main interests is, is male psychology i mean young boys just getting a good football team with a really decent mentor who's managing and looking after and creates a family impact creates a fatherly kind of presence in the lives of some boys who might not have a father figure that's a massive thing to do much better than doing cbt on a young man when he's 48 and has been in a bad marriage you know stick him in a football team when he's younger and give him a father figure he might never get to that point you know because so i think i'm thinking of psychology as something that's in nature it's not we don't own it any more than a doctor owns our bodies. We don't own people's minds. We're just simply people who study that and, and want to think about how to apply that knowledge. And really most of most great psychology is in the arts, any good novel, you know, so we're not the only people doing it. I mean, if you read a good novel, you're going to understand the human condition probably better than if you read most psychology textbooks. The way they're written can sometimes put you off psychology. So it sounds as if uh, perhaps one of the things you're saying is that the beginning point is something about developing a perspective which goes beyond the consulting room or the yeah. clinic. Yeah, and I would say my overall philosophy is, first of all, a science-based one. You have to have an epistemology. I mean, I, I don't believe the universe is simply material, for starters, time-space driven because we've got a western science basically reduces the mind to the brain so you're already lost because anything about connecting with people is lost because it's assumed that you're treating someone in a mechanical way which will change brain chemistry or change even an attitude has some schema in the brain or something we're basically very reductionist in our western science and that means psychology is seen as a junior partner to, to physical sciences so I, th I think that the spirit the human spirit Everything that matters in life is in the psychological domain, really. It's in our spirit, our hearts. Uh, you know, you can lose someone you love and yourself die the next week because you just can't live anymore. You just lose the will to live. So I think psychology and the human spirit is the biggest part of the human condition if we had to choose. But I think obviously, you know, we all, the body is massively important. The two connect, you know, Romanian orphans who were, were not, adopted into good homes didn't thrive the ones that were loved did they had the same physical shelter prisoners who uh, have physical shelter and something to eat they still hang themselves because they've got all the psychological needs are not being met they don't feel valued loved they're not they're alone they're not seeing their kids they're just you know it's all this homelessness you know people we treat homelessness as if someone's lacking a house you know so we give them a roof over their head and a bowl of soup that doesn't give them relationships, a sense of worth, purpose. So psychology is, is very much in human nature. It's in everything that we're interested in, all our art. We spend half our time listening to popular songs about love. And yet no psychologist has ever factor analysed pop songs. <laughs> and if you did that, you would find attachment theory that's completely demonstrated. 
0.0001. You know, every song is about love. Don't leave me, please stay. So these are the things that attachment and, and they, this is a core part of human condition. If we, so we've designed all our mental health services without taking account of attachment. So you see different people, you get appointments that don't fit with the last person you saw, you, you get discharged as if everything's finished, the relationship is finished. We just don't have a relationship friendly model uh, because we think of in material terms, you know, you need a treatment. So you turn up in a building, you see a doctor, you've had a treatment, but no, you're seeing a different person, different relationship. You wouldn't do that to a child and say, well, you've got a different dad today. You know, you, you have the same relation. So my whole philosophy is about preserving attachments to people. And that just means following them through. You know, it doesn't mean to have to see them very often, but I don't disappear from people's lives generally. I just sort of remain in the background. And they have an emergency, they can call me up. And that way they're not feeling discharged. They're feeling like they've just grown up and gone their own way, but they've still got this mentor figure in their lives. Uh, and I think once you take that approach, we can, you know, we could really improve our and, and save money because so the, the whole science is medical and then our approach is derived on a reductionist depersonalized model. And of course, depersonalization is what causes mental health problems in the first place. So if our mental health system is depersonalizing and our clients are depersonalized, how the hell do we expect anything to get too much better? As you're talking, Martin, it made me think of, we interviewed um, David Boyle about tick box culture, but Ooh. as you were talking, it really made me think about that because that pressure on numbers, you know, there's this emphasis on how many how many um, individuals can you see as a, as a therapist during the course of a week. But actually, if yeah. you're working, for instance, in an inpatient setting, some of those informal contacts bobbing on to the ward, not Absolutely. having your office separate from the ward, yeah. being part of the ward team, just being in the vicinity. I mean, certainly um, in the Fens, where I was clinical director, our offices were, were converted cells above the, where the prisoners yeah. lived. And that meant that we were available. They could see us interacting yeah. with other people and gradually build up trust, oh, which you don't yeah. get in a in a different kind of service, for instance. So no. I don't think there's enough sophisticated thinking about no. some of those those nuances. Is there? It's just it's no. all about get people in for something that's countable. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And what you're describing there is what I would call professional family. In other words, you're creating a culture where people are all part of a family atmosphere and all the prisoners start to feel like they've got people that they can sort of trust and look up to. So you're repairing some of the damage mm -hmm. that was done that made them get into such a bad way that the crime became their sort of path because they didn't have a family. And OK, it's not being soft on people. It's just creating conditions which help them improve. Uh, because I, I, you know, if people are dangerous, you've either got to lock them up forever. If they can change, you've got to try and change them. But you can't. Uh, the idea that uh, it isn't punitive to be in a prison already is a bit naive. If no one's ever lived in one, or been in one, if they think that. But at the end of the day, yes, what you've got to do, the human, we've got to have a model of what human health is, what with human good mental health is. We're all. This is why I take a public health sort of philosophy because. If you look at, if you go to Soho and you see that, that water pump where Jon Snow, the pioneer of epidemiology, he, he realised cholera was being caused by the water supply. So he took the handle off the pump. People stopped dying. 
That's the kind of psychologist I am, you know. And what is the water supply in mental health? It's love, you know. If you're just not loved as a person, you hate yourself, you want to take it out on someone else, that's it. So it's not about being a hippie and sort of loving people who are nasty. It's just about creating conditions where you do over time build up trust and respect. You do begin to realize that someone is listening to you. So you start to hear yourself. You start to hear your own voices. You begin to integrate your personality. You begin to feel more secure. You're less at risk of harming yourself or others because you have been in an atmosphere where someone has treated you like you're in a family. I mean, if you haven't had a family experience, you've got to have one. So you can't just have CBT. It doesn't replace a family. A, house, a hostel doesn't replace a family. Just why homeless people often, you know, it's not enough. They even trash. Sometimes they can't cope with being given something that's physically good because it doesn't reflect the inner damage. You know, people are damaged on the inside. Uh, so a psychological approach should be everywhere. You know, if you're a psychiatrist, often say this to psychiatrists, you're being insulted. If people think all you're doing is, is giving out drugs and that's what helps people, they're ignoring your personality, the relationship you have with people, all the stuff you do with them. As psychiatrists, when they're helpful, they're helpful for psychological reasons, not just biological ones. And of course, psychologists, when they're not helpful, <laughs> you know, you just, just be called a psychologist, psychiatrist doesn't make you helpful, in my view. It's the psychological factors going on in a relationship that will make it help someone or not. It doesn't matter what your profession is, but obviously if you need to have psychological expertise to have that model, to understand that's what's going on. That's why I spend my life now thinking about that. How do you create psychologically minded uh, organizations? So prison is a perfect example, you know. It doesn't mean to say you're not disciplining people, punishing them, because that's what part of parenting is. You know, with kids, you don't just soft with kids you have to discipline them so you know it's not about being hard or soft it's about love and discipline all children need that and you get that originally in families or in communities uh, and i think to some extent psychology should have a big role to play in designing policies really political policies on public uh, public mental health how you design schools how many kids should be in the classroom i mean i'm sure there are psychologists in advising government on things like that, you know, educational psychologists probably, but we don't think widely enough. You know, if you want to have a good teaching relationship with uh, pupils and teachers, you need to think about, well, how many pupils can a teacher have in their head before they forget them all? Same as how many patients can a doctor have before they forget them all? Because if you're talking to a doctor who's forgotten you, that's like being neglected, and then you're repeating mental health problems, not curing them. So. These are the things we should be thinking a lot more about, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very, uh, very true. But there's a difficulty, isn't there? Because in a way, we kind of know these things. You're describing them yeah, yeah. very, very well. Earlier in the week, I was speaking, I was doing an interview with a probation officer who had a perfect understanding of the kind of attachment issues that you're yeah. describing. And she gave me a wonderful case example. Yeah. And all, all her work has been fractured now because the, the prison service have introduced something called OMIC, which means that probation officers no longer have any contact with the uh, people they were working with. It's handed oh, over to yeah, people yeah. inside the prison. And we've also now got a Minister of Justice who, who says, um, 
we've got to stop calling um, prisoners residents. We've got to call them prisoners. Um, and I'm sure he's got psychologists somewhere who are advising him to say it probably helps a bit if places are a bit more humane and relationships are supported and encouraged. In fact, they're spending a lot of money on developing relational programs, aren't they? Yeah. But there's this kind of conflict between the political demands and the kind of thing you're describing. Yeah. How, how can one deal with that? Well, that's very difficult because when you talk to politicians, and I do, uh, they're always saying, well, yeah, we need the evidence that this works before we can justify public money. Then you do some kind of weird pilot, which is totally unrelated to anything in real life. And then if it's politically sellable, it gets approved. You know, it all becomes so diluted. We all know from watching the telly or watching, reading a book or just listening to our friends what real life is. You can't distill that into sensible policies. I mean, as psychologists, we're trying to observe the patterns in things. We're scientists, you know, what are the patterns? What can we predict if we do X or Y? What will be the outcomes? What are the risks? You know, we're doing this stuff. So yeah, it's it's like you get a intelligent individuals, but it all ends up being a very stupid system. And that is very sad. And what can you do? Yeah, it's a very good point because it, it, at the end of the day, you end up in some meeting with a politician with 20 other people and it all gets diluted into a document with a few recommendations and you know common sense can go out the window i think in my particular my particular hope is that I've, I've got a new role coming up which will help me in that respect because i i'm going to be working with an airline that that's hopefully going to you you know give some money for good causes quite a bit of money in the future and I will have a role in deciding what good causes we fund. I and mean, if we can do stuff, just do it psychologically properly and then show that it works, then we might be able to persuade people with taxpayers' money to spend that on it. But it's just obvious things to me, really. But, you know, it's just like if you want to help people with mental health problems, you've got to have spend longer time with them, you know, because... Even I think even insurance companies that do insure private therapies do their evidence is that you know they they brief therapies don't tend you know they do tend to pay for longer therapies but sometimes it's shown that brief therapies don't aren't really good value for money. But at the end of the day, politics always comes down to can you prove this works before you even try it, and you know where are we going to get the money from, uh, and. Uh, there are differing opinions, of course. It's not, uh, but so what seems like common sense by the time it's gone through a number of filters and meetings and depends who you know. I mean, I only met, I only got hold of Patricia Hewitt in the Blair government because I emailed her persistently and eventually gave in. <laughs> but, uh, and then, I, you know, in this current government, one or two people that I'm sort of privately talking to, so it's sort of you're trying to make a difference, but the end of the day, psychology is inherent even in the politics too. Because if you think about why do meetings, you know, if you're in a meeting more than, I mean, psychology dictates if you're in a meeting with more than eight people, it's now no longer personal. You know, if you have a meeting with eight people, you can have a family feeling. And that's why therapy groups tend to be about eight people. Uh, if you go, if you go over 10 people, it starts to become a committee and then you, 
the way things get decided or, you know, so it's the psychology of politics as well. And of course, uh, I think the best way to do good stuff is generally people with their own money just doing it, <laughs> getting on with it, you know, whatever your views on uh, Elon Musk or whatever, he's just bought Twitter, they'll probably make some changes that, you know, if they work, people will be happy. They'll be his changes because he'll probably have some uh, some influence over. I think at the end of the day, if you're a good person with power, you can do good things. It's just that a lot of people with power tend to get corrupted or it all gets diluted. So I think if a charity, if 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 this airline I'm working with can give me funds to do some really seriously good things, for example, like build homes for homeless kids in India, which is one thing we're going to do and build a community centre, say, in London, in a borough of London for young people, where they get mentored into craft skills, music. They get allowed time to do free, make recordings of their own music, free studio time. They can write their own plays and put them on. I think if you do that for young people in the community, and they can all be part of something, you probably find their mental health goes right up, but you'll take a few years to prove it. But I won't care, because if it's our own money, we can just do it. At the end of the day, what stops things happening is the political cycle. Even in the NHS, I noticed really good mental health teams, fantastic relationships, everyone got on. They got broken up. And you were saying that about the probation service, just some model comes in. Someone gets, impo gets imposed on things uh, and you just, you, it's top down, toxic kind of uh, planning. And the political cycle is every five years. So people want to prove they've made a difference by changing everything around. So. You know, you lose cultures, but we know what works in. We do have this common sense somewhere, but my colleague Valerie Sinison always calls it uncommon sense. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sense, but it's not very common. So I think uh, my brutal answer to that question is I'm just going to hope someone gives me loads of money to try it myself, these things. And then if I can prove it, someone else will spend taxpayers' money on it, hopefully. But a lot of innovators have set up their own things, haven't they? If you look at the world, it's changed by innovators who do their own thing, independent kind of people. Uh, institutions and organizations very rarely do anything. They often reject your appeals, you know, like even in the wartime, you know, you have these great ideas for shortening the war and you have to go through millions of committees and lots of people don't think it's a good idea, it's a waste of money. And so much resistance to doing anything that even seems sensible. So that's just the human condition, I think. Yeah, so I suppose the task for the rest of us is managing our frustration. Yeah, and I think doing what you can do. And sort of, uh, because I think, you know, although I say I try to think wider, I mean, some of my most satisfying moments in life have been those moments of connection with individual people and you just, you just connect them with damage to it. You help free them from damage that's been they've been living with for years, trauma or or just a whole sense of who they are changes into something less awful. And you feel that in the room and, and you feel their gratitude or you feel that, you know, it's tearfully sacred to be able to be with someone and change their life in that way. I'm sure you do that work, you know, Naomi does it in prisons, I know. You know, just have that connection with another human being who's changed and grown in your presence and you don't make it happen you're a catalyst you know we're not we're not creating people's health we're just facilitating natural processes 
someone's really listening to you, you will change as a person. If someone isn't listening to you, you won't change. Because uh, sometimes when someone really listens to you, you realize why you're wrong yourself. You know, and I think that's when in therapy myself, I had my own therapy and uh, you realize when you hear what comes out of your own mouth, just because someone's really listening to you, you, you sort of hear yourself better. So these are very subtle things and no one talks about them enough, but that's the most sacred thing you can do. So the only way, reason I'm thinking wider is because we want to do that for as many people as possible. Not because that isn't the gold standard. The gold standard is human connection. Uh, and uh, that's why I stayed in the NHS for so long with all the frustrations, because it's a wonderful thing as well. And the people in it are wonderful. Uh, and some of the things that you can do are wonderful. And, and uh, you do have failings and you do make mistakes, but psychological problems can be so complex. You have to spend a few years. And of course, when I was in the position to offer long-term therapy in the NHS, because I was the head of the service. So I suppose I could be, I allow that to happen. I allowed myself and others to work longer term. We always got good, better results. Uh, but yeah, so I think it is, important to find satisfactions in what you can do but to think wider but to not be overwhelmed by depression that you can't change the world because also that can become a bit narcissistic you know we want to change the world and want just to make ourselves feel great you know that we're so wonderful we're changing the world obviously changing the world is what we should all be wanting to do for the better but just to live your own life and not not do any harm is a good start to try and be a decent person and just help the people you can help. Otherwise, you go mad with all the people that you can't help because there's, too, there's so much going on in the world. I just find it ironic there's so much emphasis on short-term sessional work in the NHS because actually that is... People who, who can quickly benefit from that um, are often people whose problems are not as extensive, but yeah. also that kind of work is much more affordable. So actually, if you had to yeah. pay for yeah. psychological intervention, it would be that that would be within the budget of many people. Whereas the long term, yeah. more yeah. complex work that's needed, um, and the people who are most desperately in need of that are people who perhaps don't have jobs, have all sorts of other issues. Oh going on and so it's never going to be within their um, yeah. realm of affor affordability. Yeah I mean the NHS has really ended up becoming a, a short-term offering short-term solutions with long waiting lists for people with long-term problems so it's kind of misdesigned uh, you know you spend the right amount of time with each person and you will get better results and the primary care should be more psychologically minded that they wouldn't be filtering through so much and also we're causing more mental health problems because families, we're not supporting parenting, men or women. We're not supporting, we're not incentivizing people to be with their kids. We're not incentivizing teachers to be mentors. We're just looking at exam results. We're basically psychologically illiterate in many ways. Uh, and our kids, therefore's mental health, sort of uh, even before the COVID scenario, uh, mental health of kids was, was reducing uh, and uh, we're not looking at the you know the public mental health issues we're just looking at reactive treatments it's like everyone who gets cholera in victorian times they tried to give them 
anti-cholera, six sessions of anti-cholera treatment. That's what we're doing instead of changing the water supply. And really, that's my model. Let's change the water supply. But when someone does get cholera, let's give them the treatment, of course. But let's try and prevent these mental health problems by looking at the causes. Basically, kids need secure attachments with adults in their families and their communities. Um, with the more we take away secure attachments from children in their families and communities, the more we're building up mental health problems. And that's what psychologists should be saying, uh, not just be, being better at CBT than the next professional. So clinical psychology has become quite narrow. It's just become, and I think that was the dark, the darker side of the IACT program, because I was involved in those early days of that. And uh, I was, I could foresee some of this stuff happening. It was become a quick fix that the government money would just go from something to IAPT. It wouldn't be new money. They would just have less counseling, you know, or something because it wasn't evidence-based, which is rubbish because the only evidence basis for a good relationship, all the, all the uh, predictors of good outcomes in therapy are about, come from the relationship. Not that the techniques are unimportant, but the techniques only come into play if you've got a good relationship in which to use them. Uh, so yeah, that IAP thing just, it put talking therapies on the map, but then it, it reduced them to something brief and rather mechanical and almost medicalized them so that it's almost just like an alternative to a drug instead of a relationship. A relationship is not an alternative to a drug. People only take drugs because they're suffering. They're only suffering because their relationships aren't working. So, you know, it's all circular, really. It, uh, the IAT uh, project caused great resentment, of course, because, as you say, it really led to a shifting of funding from one place. Yeah. To, a, to another, and I know a lot of the work that you've done has been trying to kind of work around that kind of uh, competitiveness competitiveness between yeah, different brands of therapy. Yeah, I mean, the brands of therapy are important, but there's over 200 of them, so they can't all be doing something totally different. I mean, my, when I got that group for Patricia Hewitt together, of eminent people, it was really to say, let's forget the differences. What are the things all these therapies have in common? That should be the evidence base that government should be using in its policies. It's not, is CBT better than psychodynamic therapy and let's have more CBT? It should be, what do CBT and psychodynamic therapy have in common? And let's train everyone at different levels in that. And really the key thing that all these things have in common is a secure attachment. Someone who's listening to you for a reasonable period of time. I mean, it's not rocket science, really. If you have secure attachment to someone who's going to listen to you for a reasonable period in your life, your life could change. Uh, if you don't have that, no technique in the world is going to change anything except a very minor problem. Uh, and of course, as we know, we, we dose, the NHS is now weeding, you know, you have to go through hoops to even get onto it, to pass the criteria for, you know, I can understand it's about budgets, but at the end of the day, it all becomes there isn't a psychologically minded philosophy. This is the thing. So this is what psychologists we should be doing, not just arguing that psychological treatment models of work as well as drugs. That's the wrong question. We should be saying everything is psychological. You know, even if you're giving drugs, you've got to give them in a way that's empathic. You can give someone a drug just to shut them up. You can listen to someone really carefully and give them a drug that really eases their suffering and is a compassionate 
relationship. And in that, you change the person psychologically too. So a good medical relationship will have psychological impacts too. Um, a bad psychological relationship, I say a good, a good psychological relationship is changing your brain chemistry because we know science tells us that where you love children, even brain development changes. You know, there's loads of evidence that the brain development itself, the brain doesn't thrive in its development in the same way if a child is not loved. It's not just food and drink. So love is the food of life. And it does sound a bit like a hippie, but really, if we, if children are loved, their mental health, they become resilient, as long as they're disciplined as well. So if you just love kids and you don't discipline them, that isn't really love because you're not thinking of developing them. You're just thinking of them as a love object to yourself. That's narcissistic. But if you actually love and discipline kids, they grow healthy. And... Uh, you know, even that's even reflected in biology. It's not like there's a war between biology and psychology, because what is the brain other than the learning machine? Psychology is all about environments and what we learn. Well, you can't do that without a brain. So the brain and the mind are, are interwoven, but they're not the same thing. Reducing one to the other is the problem, because then you'll have any doctor is regarded as an expert on mental health. <laughs> which is a bit crazy because no one is going to ask me to do an operation on anybody just because I'm a psychologist. So it's a one-way thing where we privilege biological knowledge. Having said that, all the anti-psychiatric stuff, you know, I'm not really a part of that because psychiatry at its best was just humane application of curative philosophy to other disorders than the physical ones and some of the great pioneers of psychology were doctors to begin with. The best ones, probably Freud, and, you know, and all the rest. And the only reason they got into psychology was they realized medicine was not enough. And of course, that's the sad thing now. We're going back to thinking that everything's to do with the brain and everything's neuro, even empathy is in the mirror neurons or something. Everything's reduced to physical attributes, which was where Freud came from. He thought, well, his, you know, he looked at all his early hysteria patients. He realized that the neurology didn't fit the symptoms. It was the mind. It was the interpretation of what the meaning of people's lives that was causing them distress. We seem to have gone backwards again. We're trying to reduce everything to neurology. And, of course, Freud fought that battle over 100 years ago, and we're having to fight it again, it seems. So changing the, the, the focus slightly, uh, Martin, in your article, Who Cares for the Carer?, you write about the concept of mind blindness within the context of caring for others. Can you say a bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, it's just really more of the same thing. We're mind blind in our, I think, in a way, I was picking up on uh, Baron Cohen's idea in autism of this sort of mind blindness. I was saying, well, that, therefore, when you're looking about caring for people in any respect, if I'm going to see a doctor for help and that doctor's burned out, because they've seen 800 people before they see me. They're not listening to me. So if, if you want to care for patients in the health service or in anything, you must care for the people caring for them. Because the care you receive is only as good as the mental state of the person you're seeking help from. Let's take a single mother who's got five children. One might have lovely support from grandparents and, you know, and therefore she can process being a mother because the stress or the demands of the baby or the young children 
is mitigated by other relationships where she can process that and, and enjoy her babies and her children. If she's just on her own without any help, she's going to be overwhelmed and she's going to be stressed out. Then those children are going to become more stressed and they are going to stress her out. You get a vicious cycle of stress. So I, I regard caring professionals as like, you know, we're going to people for care. If they are not in a mental state to provide it, we're not going to get it. And then the everyone loses because the carer doesn't get job satisfaction. The person who needs the care is going to be neglected. So that's why I think it's more than an individual issue. You know, if we've got brilliant nurses on a ward, but there's so much demand that they never get a break, they start to burn out, then you know, you get mistakes made. And then, of course, you get all the publicity about nurses not being, you know, bad publicity. But obviously, nurses on average are more caring than anyone else. That's why they chose that profession. Uh, but if you get overwhelmed and burned out, you might start switching off. And that's something psychologists should be looking at more. You know, what is the, uh, how do we keep people from becoming burned out? And how do we, uh, design care environments so that they remain receptive to the patients because there's a load of uh, research on these. There's loads of uh, uh, psychodynamic research on the way that countertransference happens in mental health as well. If you've got damaged people on a psychiatric ward, they're all looking for good parents, but they're all attacking you because they've had such traumatic experiences. They're retaliating against the bad objects in their previous life. So in a mental health institution, you're going to have very difficult people uh, all in one place. And then the staff are going to be shutting down just to cope with the pressure of that. And then the patients aren't going to get what they need. And then you just get this sort of expansion of dysfunction. And you get staff leaving or burning out or only the ones that survive it are the ones that switch off. So that's no good because the, if you're a damaged person and you're trying to get attention, you need someone to pay your attention in a good way. Uh, and because uh, all people who seek attention in bad ways are people who never got attention in a good way. <laughs> so that was the only way they could get it. So until you can give them good attention, they're always going to get bad attention, you know, all these things. So if we don't look after, if we don't have a model of making supporting the, the mental state of those providing the care, then we're not going to give very good care. And of course, the way we treat nurses and doctors and psychologists in the health service sometimes can, you know, I sometimes felt the management culture was something I was fighting rather than something I was being helped by. So, uh, and one thing I would definitely do if I get this charity uh, money to do good causes is I would have retreats for healthcare staff, just give them free retreats for a few days. Because uh, not only symbolically is that valuing someone, so that in itself is like saying you, you mean something. The health service values you, so it's giving you a retreat. But also it's psychologically enabling you to process trauma, vicarious trauma. Because if you're listening to, I mean, Naomi in particular, working in prisons, you must hear some pretty horrendous stuff every day. And obviously, psychologists we do get supervision we do process that stuff it's part of our ethos which is why we need to be you know you know demonstrating the way on some of this stuff but if you're hearing this stuff every day traumatic stuff and you're not processing that 
there comes a point when you can't keep hearing it. Uh, and we need to therefore build in refreshment, debriefing, breaks. We need to maintain healthy relationships between care, uh, caregivers and patients. It seems pretty obvious when you talk about it. I don't, as I say, any, any good story will always involve those kinds of relationships and any bad stories where they go wrong. We know sort of what goes right or wrong. And as you said earlier, how do we fix that? It's much harder politically. But yeah, I, I would certainly, the key thing, if you want patients to get good care in any system, is look after the people they're turning to for help. Because if they're not in a state to listen, you haven't got any chance at all of helping them. I mean, however skilled someone is, if you're burning out, your skills only take so far. And you can't, uh, so this resilience thing is okay up to a point, but if the system is not enabling you to refresh and reprocess the stuff you're putting up with every day, uh, then you will cease to function and both for yourself and for others. Uh, and of course, people who are mentally distressed are very sensitive to when they're being heard or not. It's like manna from heaven when they do feel hurt, but they're also very honest about, they know when you're not listening. So uh, you can't fake it. I mean, I've been at times in the NHS very tired and I know I'm not really listening very well. And people pick that up really. I mean, there are times when you hope to be more honest about you know, your own state, at least within your own mind, so that you're not, the worst thing is if you're in a bad state for listening, but you're, you're not aware of that and you're sort of blaming everyone else or everything else. So it's the same as what happens in families, you know, a child wanting to talk to mum or dad and mum or dad's reading the newspaper. Not this. It's just the same human thing. And of course, David's, well, also, David's yeah. also spent a lot of time working in prisons and part of our motivation yeah. for, for doing this podcast actually was that things that are nourishing and good, conversations about things like love, as you spoke, spoke about, are things that often find them, often get quashed within forensic systems. Yeah. Um, there isn't really enough, enough feeding of the stuff that can be nourishing, which was yeah. part of our motivation for this podcast, was to be able to give voice to, yeah. to some of these important concepts that don't, don't really get heard enough. Yeah, nutrition being psychological nutrition, that's the big one for me. I think I would say it was, if you had to boil it down or something, it was just love. But obviously that sounds a bit like a, too soft. But at the end of the day, it is caring. Call it agape love, if you like. Agape being a sort of love for your fellow human, not any other form. You know, we have not enough words for love, really. We just have the one word. But yeah, agape love is nutritional for the soul. And if you don't have that, people will just not care anymore. They will do the most extreme and violent things because what have they got to lose? They live in a world where no one cares who they are or what they are. They don't even know who they are. So uh, the more you get to know someone, the less dangerous or unhappy they will become. And even if someone's terminally ill, you know, and you might think they just want to forget about it, just, just to be just to be heard, just to be listened, just to be at peace, with, to know that you're in the presence of someone who gets, you know, who, who can hear you and not run away from your feelings. That can help. You know, even in death, we need quality of listening. Uh, but I think it really is, as a, you know, we are a relational species. Everything 
points to that. We, we're forever reading books, watching TV about identifying with characters. Why do we spend all our time as human beings identifying with fictional characters, TV, you know, because we love to connect. We like to identify. Uh, and if you can just do a bit of that in mental health services, you're going to have, or just in society, you're going to have a healthier society. So we often hear this this term um, compassion fatigue, yeah. um, and uh, so it's a kind of shorthand, isn't it? Really. Mm. So to ameliorate that, uh, I think I hear you saying that psychological nourishment can be yeah. very valuable. But yeah. is there a kind of temporal element to it as well? I mean, can one just be doing that kind of intensive work? for too long. Yes, I agree, it can be too long. When, when I was designing jobs, like in the NHS, I wouldn't want someone doing five days a week in the most intense environment. I'd say, well, have a day a week in maybe primary care, and then speci you specialise, but do something very different for one day a week. I used to design sort of split jobs for people. I enjoyed doing that because you could create a balance. Yeah, if you're just sitting with the most damaged people five days a week, it can be too intense. If you're a GP and just seeing, you know, people, you don't know who's coming through the door as a GP, it might be very severe. Uh, but even if you know you're just doing, seeing less severe problems, that can be very draining as well, because you're not really getting to know people in the same level and you're not getting the satisfaction. So it's a balance. You have the human mind, the caring, you've only got so much energy for caring. So you have to, A, select people who really motivated to do it. You have to support them. You have to give them breaks and refreshment and nutrition. Uh, it seems obvious, really. You know, you'd do that if you're playing football, wouldn't you? If you wanted to win a football match, you'd have the right diet, the right this, you know. Martin, you're, you're so erudite. I've hogged all the questions. So I'm, I'm <laughs> wanting to ask Naomi to come in. Well, I was I suppose I was I was curious given your um er, your interest in male gender psychology, Martin, yeah. to know whether you think there's any sex differences in that impact on a person's ability to elicit care or give care. Yeah, I think there must be. I mean, I, I think not just to, you know, obviously on average, men and women are choosing different occupations for starters. So if you look at gender differences in occupational choices across the world so it's a species thing it's not very cultural you know nurturing caring roles are more on average chosen by females and more sort of mechanical if you like jobs are on average more chosen by males that's an average difference so that means there's lots of women who want to be engineers that's fine lots of men who want to be carers the psychology sort of comes in the middle because when psychology was more of a lab laboratory type of thing, you had more men in it, I think, than the, the old days, if you like, become more of a therapy discipline now. It's more, and 80% of psychologists are now women. So there are gender differences in people's interest in psychology. And then I think there are different styles. If you look at mums and dads, they parent a bit differently on average, you know. Dads might sort of rough house and roll around and play silly games, physical games, more on average. Than, than mothers and mothers would do other things and tune in differently men would do stuff with kids more and the mothers may tune in a bit more to the feelings so not trying to say men don't tune into feelings or women can't play physical games i'm just saying there are gender differences and as psychologists we should be we shouldn't be shy away from 
we are interested in differences, you know, and that doesn't mean to say we're prescribing them, because I think one should be free to do whatever one wants, and whatever way, wherever one's interest takes one. So just as we should allow, you know, any girl to do whatever it might look like a traditional male role, that's great, and, and vice versa. We shouldn't be stopping people from doing traditional things just because we think they should be the opposite of the tradition either. That's equally crazy. You know, stopping. Uh, we shouldn't have quotas for these things. Just be allow people to be who they want to be. But given given we've said that psychology in general, therapy culture could be argued to be more feminized. It's based on talking about feelings in a room, one to one. Tell me how you feel. And that's more off putting on average to men than women. So when we want men to seek help, we shouldn't just be saying, come on guys, open up, it's the 22nd, you know, it's the 21st century or whatever. You should be able to be more emotional now because that's a bit naive. Men and women are different in how they solve things or try to sort. We should use designing therapies to be more for male friendly. And of course, working in prisons, you guys, you're in a male environment anyway, so you probably become the leading thinkers about how to design male-friendly interventions because your whole population's, you know, prisoners are 90 odd percent men. So, uh, but yeah, so I think there are sex differences in how people, styles of caregiving, which are important. They're not, they're not bad things. Uh, and equally, there are sex differences in how people might want to seek help. Uh, and I think we were a bit behind the times. I've just written actually with John Barry, the BPS, draft BPS guidelines for therapy with men and boys. So we've just written those. So again, it's about how to, you know, because if we're trying to be empathic, we need to tune into who we're dealing with. If we deny gender differences, when then we're denying empathy because we're not nuancing our approaches to the characteristics of our client population. That's, that would be a big no-no in psychological values. So we mustn't let our presumption of sexism get in the way of psychologically minded, nuanced approaches for men. And, and you know, I've worked with some women who really can't bear you know, emotional exploration. They just don't want it. And some women are more you know, we're all on a bit of a spectrum in terms of these things. There's average differences and no one all of one or... But at the end of the day, uh, I've worked with some guys who are great. And I went into psychoanalysis, so I was quite happy to do that. But I'm not your typical man in that respect, I suppose. And also, uh, there's so many ways you can help people. Uh, and therefore, there are gender differences. I mean, if you want to help young guys, getting them into counselling isn't going to work, but if you get them into a brilliant football team or into a boxing club and really get alongside them and work with them, then they will open up in a different way to you. But if you just sit them in a room and say, tell me your dreams or something, <laughs> tell me your, you know, you just can't relate to young damaged blokes that way easily. Uh, yeah, lots of, lots of, you know, a lot of the men that I've worked with have been, um, would be viewed as being quite alpha males, you know, yeah. spent a lot of time in the gym building themselves up and actually yeah. have managed to connect with yeah, well, a vulnerable start up part of themselves that can talk in therapy. Well, that's I guess probably the, down to you. Well, I, I guess so, I guess there's something about if we're 
you know, if we were looking at other options for men to provide support to men, there still has to be an understanding that you know, so it would be no good telling everyone to get down boxing. Oh, no, if, exactly. If, if it wasn't in the context. You're yes, ticking boxes because I. That's where it always goes wrong, where politics always goes wrong. If someone like me says, oh, young men do well in sport, then they'll start saying, you know, you can't have therapy. You've got to go, you know, it's just, it's not, it's the flexibility. I mean, I'm reminded of a story. I wrote a paper recently with a guy called Charlie Jones in a, in a publication. And he, he came up with this anecdote of a nurse that was doing, just giving hot chocolate at the end of the day to the patients. And it really made a difference to them. And the manager noticed that and made it a requirement that everyone gives hot. You see, you spoil the spontaneity of it. So some of the beauty of this stuff is the spontaneity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if a guy who's pumping iron and in the gym, of course he's a human being, he's a little baby once and had a mum and, you know, there's a person in there who probably wants to be connected with. Uh, And how you do that, it might be that you start with the gym and then you, you know, do you know what I mean? There's no, what you have to do is have that bigger picture of realizing that you're trying to connect with someone and you can only connect with them where they are at that point. If you connect with them at one level, then there may be you'll connect with them at another level if you need to. Uh, but you have to connect with them at the level they're at at that point. So yeah, someone who doesn't, who wants to talk about their feelings doesn't want to be told to go down the gym. <laughs> it's just all these one size fits all policies. Mm-hmm. That's what goes wrong. And that's why we need psychological knowledge like, you know, we have, because mm-hmm. we can assess those nuances and formulate what's going to work for this person. And we don't just formulate it on our own. We formulate it with the client. They we work out from them where it's going to connect with them. And the skill of doing that is really quite complex and nuanced. Uh, you know, so what looks like a simple intervention, like giving someone a gym session might be the result of massively complex assessment that that will be the way to connect with that person at that point but just prescribing a gym session for everyone because they're a man and they you know all men should be down the gym that's you know that's just no better than anything up you know that's just prescriptive so i agree with you there and obviously yeah i think there are gender differences but equally obviously we're all part of we're all equally human so that's the other thing but but men express their pain in different ways they can get more into aggression and, and uh, maybe more likely to take uh get into drugs or alcohol you know uh and men are often who are angry and are often not seen as hurt or vulnerable mm-hmm. and obviously you usually both aren't you if you're doing damage to someone else it's because you feel very hurt yourself and you're taking that out so it's not like are these good or bad people we're all a mixture of good and bad and some of us have had more damaging lives and if you're a damaged man you're going to behave differently than if you're a damaged woman so there are gender differences in types of behavior criminal behavior you know and obviously at the end of the day you're trying to reach someone so and i think psychology has a challenge to a, develop more male-friendly approaches, which we're trying to help do, and, and people like yourselves are doing that, but also to try and get a few more men into psychology, I think, because I think 80, much as I don't think it needs to be 50-50, I think 70-30 or 65-35 would be better. 
because yeah. I think guys coming would be more likely to come into psychological help uh, if there are more guys providing it and more male-friendly sort of cultures within the health service, which tends and counselling generally it's the same thing. It's eighty percent women. Psychotherapy eighty percent women. Uh, so all of there are gender differences and they're important, but equally, yes, they're just they're just things you take account when you want to connect with someone. You know, if some if a man's talk, I, that's one thing we taught the Samaritan volunteers. If a guy's talking about football, don't try to switch him on to talking about his feelings. Make a connection with him about the football, because that way you're making a connection with him. If you start telling him to talk about his feelings, what you're saying is you're not interested in him. So how does that help him? Yeah. So I, I, I agree um, with what you're saying. I'm really conscious of the of the time, Martin. Yeah. It would be quite easy to easily spend, I think. Yeah. I was sat, sat here discussing um, these things with you, but I think we do need to be wrapping up. But just okay. just quickly before we, we go, one of the things we do like to ask people is, you know, we've spent years working with many people with, with very complex psychological needs. How have you looked after your own well-being oh. over, over well, time? I, yeah. Not always successfully, I have to say. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've got a wonderful wife, so I, most stuff I tell her. Uh, I've got friends. I've got, I've had my own personal therapy for years, not now, but I do have mentors and people I do peer supervision with. I have uh, quite a lot of my friends are psycho psychologists or people who know about it, so I just talk through stuff in confidence obviously where appropriate uh i play music i write stuff i sort of i'm not doing it all the time now because i'm sort of semi-retired but really i'm more busy in some ways as well uh so yeah i think i do an awful lot of uh walking and uh thinking i don't know it's really hard i think it's different for everybody but yeah and of course, sometimes my, I don't always look after it very well <laughs> or, you know, because I think sometimes you can't always control it uh, and it does get overwhelming. But really, on the whole, uh, I, I also have, uh, I'm a Christian, so I have faith that helps. Uh, that's obviously a big, big one. But it's not something I like to go on about too much. But I suppose, to be honest, you've got to say what these things are, but that... Uh, you know, I'm very, uh, that reboots me because I think mm -hmm. of bigger connections to things which are beyond just, you know, mm -hmm. the immediate material consequences of life. I think one does have to have beliefs in some way and philosophy that, that is, uh, yeah, I suppose sometimes you try to, uh, you can get too wound up by stuff that becomes your own, uh, you can exaggerate your, you can minimize or exaggerate your own importance in the universe sometimes, I think. So I think sometimes it's when I'm overstressed, it's because sometimes I'm getting overwound up by stuff that isn't personal to me and I shouldn't take it so personally. And I think that's the big one. You can try not to take everything personally. Especially if you go on Twitter or something. <laughs> oh gosh, yes. yes. You try not to take it personally. Just try to understand that someone's having a go at something that you represent in their mind that you know isn't totally personal. They don't know you. 
that was a fascinating conversation with uh, Martin. He touched on so many of the things that we've been thinking about over the uh, past year, and we've kind of been in and out of them a bit in the uh, various podcasts that we've done. So we talked about resilience and compassion. And I think one of the things that really struck me that he said was to do with persistence, because several people have said that, that really to make an impact with the things that you want to make an impact with, you just have to keep on doing them. You have to be very dogged. Yeah, I remember Michael West and Roma Hooper both both talked about that, the idea of revisiting and revisiting and revisiting. But I mean, so much of what he's got so much experience and so much of what he spoke about would have been very easy to go down um, a rabbit hole and spend a lot of time talking about that particular facet of the conversation. Yeah, so much rich knowledge to share there.